Hello everyone and welcome back to the Skyrim audio adventure. This chapter is particularly long and it will take a long time to produce. So I'm putting it out in two parts. Beginning with this, part one of chapter eight of the Skyrim audio adventure, The Madness of the Hall. When the hunter and Bracknell returned to the Bannered Mare that night, Holda still had the ale flowing. The guards from the outskirts were pouring in to drink away the cold before making for the barracks. It was apparently the last shift of the day. The only guards left beyond the battlements were those stationed at an outpost, or those lonely scouts at the various lookout towers scattered sparsely throughout the farmland. Predictably, Bracknell made a beeline for Holda at the bar, while the hunter navigated the sweaty sea of gold sashes to a back table by a bookshelf. A bookshelf? That was something he hadn't seen in a long time, and it was just sitting here in the open, all unguarded. In fact, it seemed to be gathering dust. Didn't anyone around here read? Eagerly, the hunter scanned the old leather spines of the books. The legend of Red Eagle sounded exciting, so he plucked it from the shelf and sat down in a somewhat large and surprisingly comfortable chair set with his back to the bookshelf, crossed his foot over his knee and began reading. This book was a good pick once he brushed the dust off. Though it never outright stated whether it was history or myth, it seemed to be based around some historical facts. Namely the subjugation of the natives of the Reach by the invading Nords who would one day call this land their own. To the southwest of Whiterun, the land grew teeth and became the jagged, hostile cliffs of a series of deep canyons called the Reach. The hunter had never been, but this wasn't the first book he'd read on the subject. Red Eagle was one such native who was named for the call of the bird that heralded his birth. He was a very accomplished warrior and had a sword that shone with flame, which he took to mean was very shiny. Weapon upkeep was something he'd have to get better at considering the recent revelations about his bow, Laria. To return to the book, it seemed that no matter how many battles Red Eagle won, the Nords kept coming, and soon he realized he was fighting a long defeat. The hunter had just gotten to the bit when the Red Eagle carved out his own heart to get stronger, and he was sitting with his eyes closed trying to figure out what kind of metaphor that could be when the doors swung open with a loud clattering sound. The hunter opened his eyes and looked to see a huge figure cloaked in black step out of the night. Their hood was up and he couldn't see their face, but he could hear the clinking of metal on wood. The figure's leather boots were overlaid with sharp steel plates that finished in a point like a bird's beak. The guards, now so full of drink their eyes were brown, still had the wherewithal to give the figure a wide berth as they strode across the tavern and straight 
to the hunter. The hunter looked down at his book, not wanting to engage unless he had to. He heard the steel footsteps come right up to him and stop. There was a tense moment of silence before a low voice emitted from the hood. That's my chair. The voice was low, but not male. He peered up into the hood. I beg your pardon? A low hissing sigh escaped as fists clenched. You're sitting in my seat. You'll have to move. There's an identical chair right there. The hunter gestured to the seat right across the small tea table from his own. A warrior never sits with their back to the room. Your back's to the room right now. There was a pause and the hunter registered that the room had gone still. The figure leaned down and sharp steel hands reached up to lower the hood. He was looking into the face of an imposing Nord woman. Her jaw was square, her skin was sun-darkened from many days on the road, and her face was scarred from battles old and new. If Ayella was crafted from marble, this woman was carved from granite. Her hair was the color of wet straw, and her eyes were a dark green. Do you know who I am? She asked. Haven't a clue, he answered honestly. I am Uthgird the Unbroken. You're speaking to the strongest warrior in all of Whiterun. Now get out of my chair, or you'll find out why. The hunter wanted to move, he really did. He wanted no part of this oncoming storm. However, he was so sore from a day's training at Yorvaskar that he couldn't move. Not to mention sitting foot over knee as he had been had sneakily put his legs to sleep. Not wanting to flop around on the ground like a newborn deer, the hunter elected to keep talking until the feeling crept back into his limbs. You know, that's the second time the strongest warrior in Whiterun has threatened me tonight. Uthgrid's eyes narrowed, emphasizing sun-kissed crow's feet. And who, pray tell, was that? The wolf of Whiterun. The companions! Uthgird bent down further, her voice suddenly dripping with venomous hatred. You're with them, are you? The hunter wanted to punch himself in the gut. This was getting worse by the second. That said, every moment she was talking was a moment he wasn't getting a candlestick shoved in his ear, so the conversation had to continue. I'm not with anyone. I try not to associate with people who threaten my life. Why would Aella the Huntress waste her time on you? It probably has something to do with the bloody nose I gave her. That still sounded weird coming out of his mouth, but he didn't hate it. Uthgird's leathery nostrils flared and her eyes would have set him aflame if he wasn't about to wet himself. You're lying, she growled. You a fan? Why don't you join them? You look strong, I'm sure they'd have you. No sooner had the words left his lips when he was lifted out of the chair and slammed against the back wall. Shaking off the immediate deja vu, the hunter was pleased. He could now use the wall to stabilize his sleepy legs. He hadn't even dropped the book. Spittle flew from Uthgird's mouth as she hissed right into his face. The companions are nothing compared to me, understand? Nothing! I could sweep them aside like the sun sweeps away the night. Okay, sounds good. The hunter squeaked, but she had already dropped him and was returning to her chair. Don't forget that, outsider. By the skies, 
the hunter thought as he used the walls to hobble to his room with needles in his legs. No wonder no one here ever reads. The hunter would have thought that after such an exhausting day he would sleep soundly, but apparently the pain in his muscles was too much to allow that. It wasn't a bad feeling per se. Ayla's words about how he had become stronger rang in his ears. Perhaps if he had some way to make money, he could stay longer before having to return to his hunting grounds. Though, what he would say to Ayala when they saw each other next was a mystery to him. He was not to help Kodlak? Had she overheard his offer? Kodlak seemed to think the hall was straying away from him. What was that about? What role did Ayala play in it? Were the two at odds then? But Kodlak was a legend, and certainly carried himself like one. He still couldn't wrap his head around actually meeting Kodlak Whitemane, a real live hero of tall tales and campfire stories. What next? Would he meet the hero of Kavach? With all this swirling around in his head, he got up very early the next morning, more because he was tired of laying down than any sleep cycle. He'd slept in his clothes so they wouldn't get taken again. Breakfast had yet to be made, so he bought an apple for three copper from Sadia, who seemed to be the only one awake, and wandered out into the streets of Whiterun. The toes of his boots were immediately wet with dew. Every clump of plains grass and patch of weeds was dripping from the chilly night. Though it was well into second seed now, the grip of Rain's hand was tight here in Skyrim. The sky was dark with heavy clouds. Here and there, a last glimpse of waning starlight in the brightening azure heavens shined through. Still feeling groggy from a poor night of semi-sleep, the hunter walked by the outer wall, raised his nose, and sniffed at the coming day. There was none of that telltale static in the air, no lightning storms, none of that smell of disturbed dust. It hadn't rained anywhere nearby. The air was damp, but not moist. It probably wouldn't rain today either. The air had a crisp feel to it, a fresh energy. He could expect a fair bit of wind today. He paused on his walk along the outer wall to dig a small hole in the dirt with the toe of his boot. He spat four black apple seeds into the hole and buried them. He then weaved through a few of the hut-like homes to the main road, gnawing on the core of the apple like a dog gnawing a bone as he went. Eventually, even that would be gone. The drunken huntsman was the best store in Whiterun, and it would be hard to change the hunter's mind on that fact. Situated near the gates, it was run by a couple of wood elf hunters, and they knew their clientele, as evidenced by how early they opened. He was able to stock up on hunting supplies for the first time since he lost his camp, Short knives, skinning knives, resin, whetstone, rope, string, snares, bear claws, flint, leather scraps, stale deer jerky at discount price, of course, iron rings, some oil for torches and kindling, as well as twenty new arrows. Crow fletched iron heads like his others. And all it cost him was practically every last coin he had, plus one or two appeals for sympathy with his missing finger. He couldn't afford a tent, but he still felt significantly more stable than he had in weeks. They turned him down when he'd offered to do some hunting for their meat stall in the market, 
Apparently they already had a few hunters on their payroll and didn't want to thin the herd too much. Despite that rejection, he'd made out like a real bandit, and the store was named after some fool getting shot in the ass. Hands down, best establishment in Whiterun. Elrinder, the more civilized of the two brothers, had even passed him a slip of paper on his way out the door, saying he was always welcome to try this if he needs to make money. They're good people at the Drunken Huntsman. Now, the hunter sat in the ghostly silence of the empty market square. He had found a nice spot off to the west edge of the space where he could sit down and keep an eye on the front door of the bannered mare. He wasn't alone. A woman was leaning against the storefront across the way, her cheap brown burlap cloak parted just enough for him to see a whiterun guard's sash. She was definitely watching him, but he was wrapped up in his task. He had his bearskin pack emptied and was eagerly augmenting it and taking inventory. First, he took a short knife to a bear claw and slowly refined it down to a curved needle, complete with a hole for thread. He ran some of the thin twine through his mouth to wet it, fed it through the eye, and set about making use of all those leather scraps. They were cheap for a reason, each being small and irregular in shape, but he didn't mind. After a solid hour's work, he had taken eight scraps and turned them into five pockets. Into one, he stowed his small cask of oil, one his whetstone, one his knives, and one his snares. The last pocket was chaos, holding flint, bear claws, and excess string. He prepared more twine and attached the resin pouch to his utility belt next to his water skin. He then began to use the thicker ropes to reinforce the shoulder straps, and perhaps, he thought, make an anchor he could tie around his waist just above his belt to secure the pack. At some point, as he set out on this latest venture, he started to hum out a song. It was an old melody, something that vexed him when he tried to place it. It came out as easy as breathing. Da 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 In time of most need from Suddenly, a new voice was there. It had joined him in the melody, only this voice wasn't humming. She was singing. A burst of light, a fated fight. The string might have been caught between some teeth the way it was hanging loose from his lips as he took in the newcomer. It was the woman from yesterday, the one he had thought might have been Mila's mother. Long dark hair tucked behind her ears, pale skin but proud imperial features. Her lush lips parted as she began the next verse. The words pulled at his mind. They stung and plucked at tangled memories long since stowed away. In shackles we died, in millions we cried. A hero came, immortal name. Before he knew what he was doing, the hunter had joined in. Words floating to him out of the ether like wisps of smoke. They sang together. Alicia, the queen of slaves, she put the aelids in their graves and freed the tower from their power. Did brave Alicia, Alicia, first of her kind, she led us to the eight divines, and of more house she made a spouse, did fair Alicia. 
At the close of the song, the pair just stared at each other for a moment. The hunter's tunnel vision slowly alleviated, and he noticed the cart. It seemed the woman had been dragging a cart full of fresh vegetables. He looked to his left and realized that, without meaning to, he had sat right next to her market stall. Mila, in a dirty green dress, was standing behind the cart eyeing him with distrust. Behind her, a few people were moving through the square tucked into their dark cloaks. He looked back to the mother apologetic, but she was only smiling. Not the condescending or playful smirks of Ayala. This was a soft and kind smile. So, you're from Cyrodiil then? Uh, no, actually. But I can see you're mixed, at least. See, Mila? He's just like you. So he's not a bandit? No, he's just a man. But really, I haven't seen you around till yesterday. Who are you? I'm a hunter. You can call me Stranger. Seems appropriate enough. Where are you from, Stranger? Helgen, or thereabouts. Oh, up in the mountains. No wonder you dress like that. <laughs> yeah, how about you? What's your name? I'm Carlotta Valentia. I sell food in the market for some of the farms outside the walls. Today's batch is from Pelagia Farm and Grove. I'm sorry, but can I ask you why you thought I was from Cyrodiil? Well, that's a Cyrodiilic song. Ah. It's Alicia, the slave who led the rebellion of men against their elven masters. The hunter continued to stare blankly at her. Liberated the land of Cyrodiil? Uh, no. She established the Church of the Eight Divines and became the first empress of the first Cyrodiilic Empire. St. Alicia, first of her kind! Never heard of her. Sounds like a really old story. It is, but every empire girl grows up on stories of Alicia. How do you know the song but not the story? I must have heard it before. Maybe from my mom? What's a Morehouse? Morehouse was the half-god, half-nord, all-minotaur son of kind. He was Alicia's first champion, and her lover, they had Belharza, who became the first emperor. You read a lot of books. Someone has to teach my daughter her history. Oh, so this is your little, uh, Belharza. My little ray of light. Come over, Mila. Carlotta motioned over to the cart, and meekly, little Mila came out and approached. This is Stranger. Say hi. Hi, Stranger. Sorry me and Lars Mireella beat you up. Oh, no, uh, don't don't worry about that. I'm I'm sure she would have found a reason to do it anyway. Why do you dress like that? You look just like the stories of bandits. Well, I wear these clothes because normally I live on the slopes of that big mountain right there. Oh, the throat of the world? Exactly. And most of the year it gets very cold up there, so I have to wear these furs to keep warm. But we're not on the mountain now. Why are you still wearing them? Very astute of you, Mila. There are a few reasons, actually. One reason is the same reason I wear this belt and dagger here. You see, for hunters, it's very important that we always be ready and prepared. That way we can adapt and move and survive in a bunch of different ways. That's cool! It is cool. And the other reason is that I'm really, really broke. Just stone broke. Just staggeringly poor, strapped, destitute, anything you want to call it. As in... On any given day, I have no money. Oh, I get it. You're like Brenwyn, 
The hunter looked to Carlotta. It was Brennan. The town beggar. Okay, I'm not like Brennan. Not at all. I actually do have some money. I always keep a few coins in my boot for emergencies. Here, I'll show you. You might want to learn this trick. Just as the hunter was grabbing for his boot, Carlotta stepped back into the conversation. Mila, uh, would you please mind setting up the stall? Yes, Mama. Sorry. And, uh, thanks. Sometimes nothing comes out, and sometimes it's a bloody torrent. Don't worry, I understand. Spent a lot of time alone as well. So there's no Morehouse in this story? No. My Morehouse died in the bandit raid on the Loras farm when she was two. It's been the two of us ever since. I don't mean to be insensitive, but have you ever- Have I ever considered remarrying? Not for a second. I know I'm pretty, even exotic to a lot of Nords, but they want me, that's all. None of them care about Mila's well-being, and she's really the only important thing in my life. Them? So there have been a few men interested? Are you kidding? Half the men in Whiterun have proposed to me. Few are even single. Imagine that. They'll just never understand. Nothing's coming between me and my little girl. And you've turned them all down. Of course. To varying degrees of success, mind you. You're not after me too, are you? No, no, no. I'm... No, not at all. I'm not sticking around anyway. The hunter noted a brief narrowing of her eyes and corrected course. Not that it would make a difference. Too right it wouldn't. If I may, though, how can you be unsuccessful at rejecting someone? Don't you just say no? Well, it's all a question of whether they'll take no for an answer. Men have egos, and Nord men especially. So then what? Are you having trouble with them? Oh, no, not real trouble. I've got the guards to look out for me. She said, turning and waving to the guard still leaning against the storefront in her gold sash. The guardswoman nodded back levelly. Those who aren't suitors themselves, at least. No, what ends up happening is that some of them will throw a tantrum, or try to ruin my good name somehow. Most people just recognize that as hot air, though. Still, that's terrible. You're just trying to look out for your daughter and you have to deal with slander? It is a pain. Especially when Mikael starts spouting off about me. Who's Mikael? Oh, right, you're new here. Mikael is a bard that lives in the city. He frequents the Bannered Mare. The hunter remembered back to the man he'd seen playing the drum one-handed the night he'd arrived. Dark blonde hair, the dusting of a mustache and goatee. What's he done? Well, again, he hasn't done anything. But the way he talks about me, you'd think I said yes. He keeps boasting about how conquer me as a true Nord conquers any harsh beast. Really? I'd sooner kiss a skewer than that mealy-mouthed waste of air. The hunter just listened to Carlotta vent, silently making a mental note to never refer to a woman as a harsh beast. In light of recent evidence, he was beginning to question every book he'd ever read about dashing, adventurous bards, the suave wooers of women, and riders of ballads. The reality, while a narrow view, was substantially less glamorous. Eventually, Carlotta realized she was doing basically all the talking. She stopped and glanced back to Mila, who was carefully moving the vegetables from the cart to the stall and arranging them according to the strict but unknown logic of young minds. The imperial woman then drew the back of her hand across her forehead and looked back to the hunter, still sitting on that spot. So, would you like any fresh vegetables? Huh? Oh, no, I already ate. Then why are you waiting by my stall? 
Oh, I'm just uh, fixing my pack here. The hunter held up the rope and twined for emphasis. I had some trouble, so I had to restock. Now I'm just getting sorted. What kind of trouble? The kind. Ah, uh, the kind with flowers and rainbows and... <coughs> uh, bandits? Oh. I'm sorry. Her eyes darted to his hand briefly. Don't be. It's fine. I'm... I'm here now. Just restocked to the drunken huntsman. They even gave me this to help me find work. The hunter reached into a pouch and pulled out the folded slip of parchment. What's that? This is... The hunter unfolded the slip of paper and ran his eyes down it. He visibly deflated and sighed. It's a bounty notice. He handed the notice to Carlotta, looking thoroughly crestfallen. Here, you can have this. I'm not interested. Carlotta held the parchment out in front of her and read. Bounty. By the will of Jarl Balgriff of Whiterun. 300 gold septums are to be paid for the routing, clearing, or wholesale eradication of the bandit troop that has taken up residence in the Valtheim Towers of East Whiterun. Payment shall be issued at proven completion of this task, as confirmed by the Whiterun Guard. By order of Preventus Avenici, signed Balgraf the Greater. Carlotta finished reading and moved to hand the note back to the hunter, but he refused to take it. I'm not interested in bounty work. Amran started out as a mercenary. Now he lives in the Wind District. Yes, well, I'm not Amran, and I'm not interested in 300 gold for that. 300 gold is a lot of money. For someone in your position, I imagine this would be tempting. I suppose, but even if I do that, I won't get 300 gold. Bandit troops have anywhere from 10 to 20 fighters. I'd need to hire people to help me and split the reward. So let's say I hire, uh, be generous, five warriors to give me a fighting chance. That means it's really 50 gold for me. Then some of that has to go to weapon and armor repairs, or medicine if I get hurt. So really, again being generous, there's 30 gold in it for me. Which is maybe a month of modest living before I need to do it again. And that's assuming I don't die. In fact, if this Amrin you speak of really got rich doing that, then either he's one of the most skilled warriors in all of Skyrim, or a lot of his own people have died on the job. Carlotta was watching him steadily, eyebrows raised. Then perhaps this isn't for you. No. Sorry for ranting again. I'm sure Amrin is a decent fellow. You're in a tough place, huh? I'm doing a lot better, really. Then you can take back this notice. I don't need you pushing your trash on me. I... <laughs> uh, sure. That's fair. Look, I don't normally give out charity, but I suppose I could part with a carrot or two while you're here. No, really, um, it's fine. I'm just waiting for a friend in the mare. He should be waking up soon. Carlotta narrowed her eyes and looked back to the inn. Are you sure you haven't missed him? It's mid-morning already. The hunter started at this and looked up at the sky. The clouds had darkened the day, but she was right. The sky beyond was brightening. A mighty glow suffused the whole eastern sky. The hunter quickly stowed his supplies into his pack. Sorry to be abrupt, but I need to be somewhere. So I see. Well, if you're ever looking to spend that emergency coin, I've got the freshest crop in the market. I'll take it under consideration. You have a very good mother. Always listen to her, all right? He finished strapping everything on, slung his bow over his shoulder, looked at Carlotta for a brief moment before giving her an awkward nod, and set off to the Wind District and the Skyforge.
Bracknell didn't make an appearance till the hunter was almost done with his fitting. Yorland had sat him down at a table in the patio and had used a knotted thread to make countless little measurements of his hand and wrist. He was finishing up by making several tracings of his hand with quill and parchment. The hunter was sure some of the ink had gotten on his hand, but he did not dare interrupt the master. So he stared blankly at the rafters, listening to a faint scrabbling sound he wasn't sure about. It could be mice, or more likely a swallow. He just about settled on the idea that it was a family of wrens, when Bracknell came waltzing around the corner, a touch out of breath, with a huge greatsword strapped to his back. This thing was magnificent. It was nearly as tall as Bracknell, its pommel protruding about a foot above his head. A bright red gem was set into the pommel, contrasting with the rich black leather of the grip. The steel of the guard was inlaid with a gold material he didn't recognize. The blade was hidden in the black scabbard, but even that was spectacular. There were silver runes crafted into it. He couldn't see all of it from here, but he recognized the Nordic rune for Sentinel, peeking over Bracknell's shoulder. The contrast between Bracknell's rough and wizened self and the majesty of this sword created an absurd scene. What the hell is that? Well, good morning to you too, stranger, wheezed the old Nord as he hoisted the sword off his back and set it on the table. It's uh, almost time for lunch. Where have you been? Enjoying the many benefits of city life. What are you two, pitting nails over here? I gotta look good for my date with Aethys, don't I? Seriously, what's with the greatsword? Bracknell grunted as he sat down and wiped some sweat off his brow. It's the masterwork of Adrian Avenici. I agreed to ferry it up the hill to Dragon's Reach for presentation to the Jarl. In return, I'm getting a discount on my footlocker. So you're headed up to the castle then? Yes, if only for a moment. Would you like to come? The view is bound to be splendid, but I'm pretty set on training for the day. Then we'll head up when you're done. What about the delivery? It was never specified that I'd be hasty, only that I get it there, Bracknell said with a cheeky grin and a grunt as he unslung his bow. The hunter eyed the old soldier's versatile weapon as it was set down next to the sword. Say, has Ayala ever told you to get a new bow? He asked. Bracknell's grin grew wider at the question. She did. Once. Next morning she had to explain why two of her nice eagle-fletched arrows were stuck in the wall above the Jarl's bed. The hunter's jaw fell open, aghast as he looked from the smiling old Nord to the towering spires of Dragon's Reach Castle. How in Nern did you pull that off? Who says it was me? They were her arrows. Guards all shoot the pigeon flitch with red dye. You colossal curmudgeon. Don't you get snappy with me, I know nothing about it. But I do know the Jarl isn't allowed to sleep in a room with a window anymore. The Earleth had his bedroom moved. It was about this moment that the hunter noticed the table was beginning to shake. He planted both feet firmly on the ground, trying to feel for the earthquake he was sure was building. When the ground proved solid and still, he realized what was happening. Yorland Greymane was leaning over the table, beside himself with laughter. The laugh of this master smith seemed almost paradoxical in nature, being at once a low rumble and a high wheeze. The hunter relaxed and looked back to Bracknell. Did Ayala actually get in trouble? Well, the guards couldn't prove anything. Ayala was the only one who both used those arrows and had the skill to make that shot, as far as they knew. That being said, she's still the wolf of Whiterun, and certain allowances had to be made. 
It was exceptionally annoying at the very least. I am glad to see the madness of the hall has not escaped you, Bracknell. Yorlin chuckled as he stood gathering his materials. I am done. You are leaving the morning after next? Yes, the hunter confirmed. Come see me before you head out then. It'll be ready. He stepped over to the greatsword and picked it up, inspecting it closely. Bracknell made no move to stop Yorland as the smith undid the cording that anchored the sword into the sheath and smoothly drew it. The steel gleamed bright, even in the shade of the patio. Yorland looked down the length of the blade at the acid-etched ruins. The hawk with eyes most watchful tends the garden most bountiful. Blaze Garden, they read. He took the grip in both hands and gave it a small shake. Finally, he ran his hand along the blade, pausing and squeezing lightly as he went. Very good, he muttered softly, then returned the blade to its scabbard and retied the anchor cord. The hunter thought the knot was somewhat more ornate than it had been before. Then, in that way of his, without another word, he left, leaving the two hunters sitting alone by the yard of Yorvaskar. I praise that is, Bracknell muttered before slapping his knee and looking at the hunter. So, you ready to go find Aethys? The pair stood, stretched, and wandered inside in search of the Dark Elf. They did not find him in the barracks below, but splayed out on a fine couch by the smoldering fire pit. His skin was a purplish-gray shade on the light side for his race, and his brow ridge was heavy and pronounced as one would expect. His mouth was narrow as was the rest of him, wiry and spry and in a sorry state. His eyes were bruised, his nose was clogged with dried blood, and his jaw was hanging crooked as he snored loudly. Bracknell, not seeming to be worried about any of this, approached and poked him softly in the ribs. Aethys's snoring caught and he shifted sleepily. His swollen eyes blinked open and the hunter thought they might have been bloodshot, but he couldn't tell because Dark Elf eyes were always crimson. His hand moved to his jaw, and as his first act of the day, Aethys yanked it with a loud pop, and the jaw was returned to its socket. He peered up at Bracknell. Ah, oh, no, you. He said as if he was speaking around a small mouthful of food. You're that old fucker what pals around with a yellow smelling like a wet rag. And you're that sorry excuse for an elf who wants to be a Nord, despite the fact you still look like a twig. The Dark Elf smiled slowly. Bracknell. To what do I owe the pleasure? Just wondering if you're ready to get some sparring in. Is the sun up? Aethys asked in a tone that didn't sound like a real question. Bracknell nodded. It is. Then I'm ready, Aethys said, sitting up with a groan. He snorted and tried to wipe the dried blood from his nose. I always put in work on a tear das anyway. It's mid-ass, the hunter chimed in. Is it? Fucking incredible. The elf turned a narrowed eye to the hunter. What are you then? New whelp? No, I'm just training. You can call me stranger. I think we met yesterday in the training yard. Did we? I don't recall. That's because Njeda slammed you through a table, Bracknell clarified. Oh. Aethys wiped his nose again and finally seemed to take proper stock of himself. Well, that explains why everything smells like wine and piss. He swung his legs off the couch and felt his jaw again. I tell you what, get me, give me a half hour to get myself sorted, and I'll meet you in the yard. Sure, take your time, Bracknell said, and motioned to the hunter to follow him outside.
Today's training was far closer to what the hunter had been expecting. First, Bracknell talked both he and Athos through some forms with the training rods. The motions were difficult with the weighted sticks, and the parameters for success seemed very narrow. Then they switched to wooden swords. Not the kids' toys he and Ayala had fought with, but properly scaled long swords. They were somewhat lighter, and the hunter felt he could actually wield them. In fact, just after the switch, it felt so light in his hand he thought he might just be a master. Then the real training began. They started by working on basic parries and reposts. Bracknell, for his part, pulled up a chair and sat back sipping what the hunter strongly suspected was alto wine, and underwent another transformation. From reclusive hermit, to well-connected socialite, and now to military drill instructor. Stranger, are you holding a shield? Uh, no. Then why are you standing with your sword in your backhand? Switch your feet! Always keep your sword between you and him. Don't give him a bigger target than you need to. It went like this for the next couple hours. Don't be a stationary target. Move your feet. Leg strikes are sneaky, but if you don't set them up, he'll stab you right in your dumb face the moment you drop your sword. That strike was too wide. What are you trying to cut the forest? You don't need to swing hard to cut deep. Be fast. Be nimble. Don't spin, at least not unless you're engaged with his blade or moving away. Then there's nothing to stop him from stabbing you in the back. We'll work on pirouettes later. They do come in handy against multiple opponents. Stay engaged. Keep that point on him. If he runs away, make him pay. But don't chase or you'll lose your base. Come on now, you want two hands on that strike. Don't get cute. Watch his offhand. Don't let him have control over your blade. Remember, cutting his sword arm is just as good as lopping off his head. And a lot easier to reach. And on, and on, and on. The hunter had hoped that the intense training from the day before would in some way steel him against exhaustion, but his muscles were drained of their energy even faster than before. Athos, for his part, was doing well, moving in a manner that was both deliberate and relaxed, both firm and smooth. He didn't seem too tired at all. His gaze was level and keen despite the swelling in his eyes. They had to pause repeatedly for the hunter to chase down his sword, with every other repost, Athos was able to easily disarm him. No matter what little adjustments he made to his grip, unless he had both hands on the sword, his missing finger was a major hindrance. So much so, that Athos wasn't too keen on moving on to open sparring. Nonsense. He's a tough lad. He can handle a bit of punishment, Bracknell said through a mouthful of bread. He had, of course, taken lunch without them. I'm not worried about him, Athos clarified. I'm worried about me. How am I supposed to get anything from sparring with someone who can barely hold the sword? He went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Ayala the other night. Trust me, he'll do alright. The hunter wasn't listening to this exchange. He was scanning the tables in search of anything that could pass for food. He was, once again, starving. Eventually, he relinquished his ambitions of rationing and grabbed some jerky from his pack. He was still chewing it when he and Athos finally faced off. The Dark Elf stretched and held his sword up steadily in one hand. The hunter danced lightly on the balls of his feet, ready to move at a moment's notice. Bracknell had started smoking pipeweed lazily. The old Nord seemed to be distracted by a scrabbling sound in the rafters, before finally nodding to himself and shouting, Begin! Nothing happened. Aethys and the hunter stared at each other, red eyes matching dark brown. Then, Aethys broke into laughter. <laughs> oh, by Azura, if only every fight went like this. 
What a world! If everyone was so focused on their second move, no one bothered to make the first. Oh my, how peace would reign. But, but, <laughs> but alas, that's just not how it goes, is it? I bet Ayella came right at you, but not me. You want to spar with me? You'll have to come into my house. The hunter still didn't make a move, and Aethers cocked an eyebrow. I can afford to pick this up right here tomorrow. Can you? Now the fight began. The hunter stepped right, and Aethys started to circle. The hunter struck high, and Aethys moved suddenly into the strike, parrying and swiping through. The hunter jumped away, and thought he had avoided the blow, until a small pain began to radiate from his right ribs. He huffed out a frustrated sound of acknowledgement, and re-engaged. He went right again, and thrust overzealously at Aethys' midsection, trying to draw the high counter. He did. As the dark elf dodged right, and jabbed at the hunter's head, he switched his feet and followed through just as Ayela had done to him before. Changing his angle, he ducked Aethys' strike and drove the pommel of his wooden sword into the elf's gut. He wasn't powerful enough to sit his opponent down, but he was able to counter his next strike and land a would-be cut to his forearm as he disengaged. Aethys shook out his wrist, nodding, and the two squared off again. Then the hunter got hit in the shoulder. Nothing fancy, it was just a fast strike and the hunter hadn't expected a thrust to that part of his body. He mentally adjusted, and they went again. The pair were not evenly matched. Aethys got the better of most exchanges, but the hunter won a few, and that was enough to keep him trying. He did have to chase down his sword a couple times. However, as they were not expressly working on parrying, Blade met Blade far less than in the drills. His favorite moment was when he felt some sixth sense telling him that Aethys was setting up a low strike. He jumped it and popped the Dunmer in the ear before he came down. On one occasion, he was able to surprise the Dark Elf with a feint and pirouette, but for the most part, he was the one being surprised. The sky had started to dim when something happened that surprised all three of them. The hunter felt a hard impact as something small slammed him in the shoulder. Aethys had been several paces away, and he shot the Elf a questioning look. Was he really that fast? For his part, Aethys blinked, confused. Suddenly, something else hit him in the chest, knocking him back a few steps. He clutched at the spot and looked around at the ground. What he saw, clattering against the stonework, was an arrow, with a soft, bulbous pouch where the sharp tip should be. Aethys dropped his guard and fled for the patio. The hunter looked up to see another shadowy dart streaking through the darkening sky. He dropped reflexively and heard the arrow impact behind him. The hunter didn't consider himself a scholar among men and elves, but he was confident that he knew exactly what was happening and who was responsible. Bracknell waddled stiffly out of his seat and looked up to the keeled roof of Yorvaskar. Ayala! Knock it off, you lousy wench! He, predictably, had to immediately duck back under the patio as a dummy arrow was sent his way. It's time to switch it up, stranger! came Ayala's smiling voice. Let's see if you can block arrows. The hunter shot to his feet and bounced on his toes, ready to move. But remarkably, the next two arrows came down at the same time. He dodged and held up the broadside of his wooden sword, but the arrow still bopped him in the neck, inducing a coughing fit. When he was doubled over hacking, he felt another one hit the scar on his rump. Impressed yet? Came Ayala's familiar jeer. 
Bracknell called something that sounded like parry. And when the hunter came up again, he started swiping at the incoming arrows, trying to knock them out of the way. He imagined he looked like a man thoroughly beset by a swarm of bees. None of his swipes did him any good. So he made for the cover of the patio, covering his head like he was in a hailstorm. He was pelted as he went. One arrow caught him in the gut, and he was quick enough to catch it there before it bounced off. When he finally found cover, the yard fell silent. He looked up to see Bracknell and Athos calmly eating from a small food platter as if nothing crazy had just happened at all. They looked up at him and nodded, as if he really had just come in from a rough storm. Then they went back to wrapping smoked sausage and goat cheese and eating it. He stared for a moment, then nodded back. This was apparently not something worth fretting about. He strode lazily over to his bow, still clutching the arrow that he had caught. He took it up, knocked the dummy arrow, and waited patiently. Bracknell! Came Ayala's voice as she scrambled down the roof and dropped over the edge of the overhang. I think I found something else your boy needs to work on. No sooner had she finished that sentence, before a soft-tipped arrow slammed her right in the forehead. Her head was knocked back, and she stumbled, eyes rolling in wide sockets. This stopped Bracknell and Athos from eating. This was out of the ordinary. The two sat wide-eyed, mouths full, looking between the hunter and the wolf of Whiterun. Without a word between them, they picked up their table and moved it several feet out of the way of what was about to happen. Ayala was wearing a similar outfit to yesterday, only this time her sleeveless tunic was a faded blue matching her eyes. Eyes that were now glaring out from a mask of rage. What? The hunter asked, holding his arms out wide. You started this. You are dead, she growled between deep, seething breaths. Bring it. Ayala charged, dropping her bow and quiver as she came. The hunter responded in kind, dropping his bow and charging with a roar. The pair met in a crunch of hair and flesh. They hit the deck, rolling, elbowing, and biting at each other. Tables were knocked over. Chairs were tossed. They made such a racket that voices began to rise from inside Yorvasker. Soon the doors were open, and someone was shouting, Oi, look at this! Ayala's fighting the new guy! Rhea! No, the other new guy, numbnuts! Soon they were surrounded as the esteemed hall of the companions cheered them on. The hunter found himself on the bottom and wrapped her up in his legs. He was laughing. The madness of the hall had taken him too. He was cackling like some wild thing as Ayala lifted him up about a foot and slammed him down, displaying more strength than he thought should be proportionally possible. He strained to keep his head from hitting the stone and laughed some more, tears pricking his eyes at this ridiculous family he'd stumbled upon. Thank you for listening to part one of chapter eight of the Skyrim audio adventure. The role of Carlotta Valentia was played by Ariella Dahlin. If any of you would be interested in voicing a role, just reach out to me on my Patreon, and while you're there, why not help the show grow? This has been great fun to work on, and I hope to share that with whoever I can. I hope everyone's having a good start to the year, and once again, thanks for listening. <laughs>